Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, Phil Ewell, Christopher Jenkins, Lydia Bangora, and Susan McClary discuss how the Theorizing African American Music Conference came to fruition in the first episode of a series on this monumental conference. So to start, I would love to hear about both of your experiences in music and in music theory specifically. You know, it's always so interesting how music scholars come to realize that they want to study music theory or musicology or ethnomusicology to do music research, since normally we're not like eight years old and wanting to (laughs) be a music theorist or something like that. So how about let's start with Chris? Sure. Well, so... um... I will give the caveat that I'm not a music theorist officially. I'm a musicologist insofar as that distinction matters at all. And I was actually recruited into it, which um, makes a lot of sense. I think in a field that historically has maybe not been as appealing or as receptive to people of color, I was actually in my DMA interview at CIM. I was working as a dean and associate dean at Oberlin. And I thought, you know, I should really get my doctorate and I should probably do it in field performance. I can do that at CIM. And I was auditioning and had my interview where Susan McClary was there. I'm embarrassed to say I did not really know particularly well who Susan McClary was at that time. I'm old enough that when I was in in college, we didn't read Susan McClary yet. Um, So, you know, I was meeting her and I said, okay. How are you? It's great to meet you. Uh, you know, what I do, I play viola. I work at Oberlin. And she said, what do you do besides play the viola? And I said, well, I've published a few things on Black music, on the aesthetics of Black classical music in, in particular. And she said, well, would you have an interest in applying to the PhD program in musicology? And I said, well, maybe. I've never thought about that in my life, but that's possible. And then we had more conversations and I got more interested in the idea and realized that I could do it concurrently with my DMA. So still pursuing both degrees and have a degree program worked out wherein both institutions have signed off on my doing that. So I can double count my credits, which is very lucky. And that is how I became a musicologist. Yeah, I uh, started playing cello when I was nine. And my dad was very into classical music. He came from that kind of early to mid 20th century African-American, I don't know, intelligentsia, let's say. I sometimes think of my dad as a cross between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. And, uh, you know, in in that, uh, of course, Du Bois was very into classical music and to Wagner, and he went to Germany to study. And, uh, you know, a lot of Black people thought that uh, liking classical music in the early to mid 20th century might help them assimilate. To a small extent, they were correct, but only to a small extent, unfortunately. And uh, my dad was certainly one of those people. So he always filled our house with classical music, which was fine. I, I still quite like classical music, obviously. And I certainly like playing the cello, but that's why I started playing the cello. And uh, ultimately, I ended up going to college, not really to be a musician. Um, I was thinking about engineering or maybe physics. My dad was a mathematician. And uh, I ended up, uh, I did take my cello and I kept playing and I started practicing and I realized you can get better if you practice. Something I never really learned until I was about 19. (laughs) And so I did declared music as a major and um, I did a few things, but maybe the most interesting thing I did was end up going to Russia to study cello. Um, in the late 19, well, actually, uh, the first time I was there was the summer of 91. And um, I uh, applied to graduate schools from St. Petersburg, Russia, as a matter of fact, and I applied to DMA programs. So I have that same, uh, I have that in common with Chris. I did get into some really good programs. In fact, I got into your program, Lydia, Michigan, 
and they gave me a really good package, I should say. But I had also applied to um, PhD programs, and I was accepted into Yale as a musicologist, uh, not as a music theorist, actually. Um, so I have that in common with Chris, too. <laughs> and I don't think, Chris, you ever knew that, but uh, that's my path. And uh, ultimately, Leon Plantinga was, was recruiting me from Russia to go to Yale. And I think he probably forgives me for essentially moving over to music theory. I took some classes with Alan Fort, and they were really fun. He was a very fun professor to study with, um, had a great wry sense of humor. And I like that. And, and theory just kind of fit me better. I had a, a master's from Queens College where I was able to study with Carl Schachter. And he also had that wonderful, I should say he has that wonderful uh, wry sense of humor. And so that's how I got into music theory uh, at Yale. I, I ended up finishing in 2001 and uh, and then had three different appointments. I came to Hunter in 2009 and I've been here ever since. Yeah, wow. So interesting. Thank you for sharing. Great. So my second question is after you had this encounter with Susan McClary, where she, you know, challenged you both, charged you both with something needs to happen around theorizing African-American music. And I don't know what that is, but y'all can begin to convene about that. I'm really interested in, in the conference idea as far as that being the medium that you picked to express these ideas and to explore African-American music, specifically within the music theoretical context. So what was it, as far as the initial vision, what was it about a conference that appealed to you both versus something like, oh, we're going to start a new publication or we're going to get together a, a textbook or collect some resources or publish something around it or even do something like this, like a podcast, a, you know, a series of continued conversations about Black music. What was it about the, con the concept of a conference that appealed to you both? Uh, it was a question, I think, first of what was happening, where there were gaps, and what our available resources were. So we talked about a number of different possibilities. This was, this would have been back in April or May of 2021, right, Phil? I, I believe when we first had those conversations. So it's a little while ago, but I think so, right? So, um, I, you know, there is, I believe, a textbook that Phil's been a part of that is going to address some of these issues that's, that's going to come out. So that was already in process. And, you know, to a certain extent, academic publishing is a little bit, dare I say, limited in its reach and impact on the broader scope of, of, of um, uh, conservatory life, right? And how um, uh, pedagogy is, is uh, evolving. So not that that can't be impactful, but it's not necessarily a rapid impact or a deep impact, depending on what you do, right? So um, I think we had the opportunity to do something that was akin to a conference, partly because we had uh, strong institutional support in case from Overland, uh, from CIM, from places that could actually physically host us. And Cleveland made a lot of sense as a location because of the low cost relatively for housing, because we had resources, right? We could use, um, make use of the CIM dorms, which they very generously granted us, things like that, that we knew that uh, Case was interested in actually hosting and making spaces available, which is the biggest issue with the conference, right? Paying for space. If you have space for free, then you can do something. So a lot of it was matching up what we felt would have an impact, what could happen based on our available resources and what needed to happen based on what else was going on at the time. I would add that, uh... And this is a difficult, this is a little difficult to say, but maybe I would approach it by by saying that in, in the summer of 2020, the summer of open letters, uh, there were four Princeton faculty who wrote a letter to the president and provost of Princeton. And that letter was ultimately signed by about 300 people. And it, it started by saying, I think this is a verbatim quote, America is foundationally anti-Black. And then it explains how it, it limits how Black people can move, where they can live, uh, where they can get loans. And nobody should really question that. It just is. If you think of the, the three-fifths uh, compromise, which counted the three of us, by the way, <laughs> as 60% of a person, right? Three-fifths of a person to the fugitive slave clause of our founding documents, right? 1787. 
And uh, along those lines, uh, I would say, so America is very much in part anti-Black, foundationally so. Well, American music theory is also in part foundationally anti-Black. That might be hard for people to hear, but it doesn't make it any less true. Uh, music theory is in part anti-Black. It just is. Um, because our country is in part anti-Black. Again, this is a statement of fact. This is not really an open question. So uh, with that in mind, uh, Lydia, to your question about the conference, um, and you had mentioned in the setup that perhaps we could do something within the context of music theory, like maybe attach ourselves to an SMT panel or a pre-conference or something like that. But that is uh, not doesn't have the same impact, right? So very, this conference was very much like we want to, uh, the language that we kept coming back to was foreground Black voices in talking about Black music, which we decided to call African-American music. There's a slight difference there, but but not much. And that's what we did. And we, we're trying to put it on the same ground, uh, making it uh, on an even playing field, right? Because frankly, it never has been on an even playing field. Uh, music theory, Black music theory, theoretical ideas, uh, music theoretical ideas have been segregated out of mainstream music theory, which is to say white music theory forever, right? They've never not been segregated out along racial lines. Why wouldn't they have been segregated out along racial lines when the entire country was doing exactly that? Sometimes in white spaces, especially in white academic spaces, it's, it's kind of confounding to me how people think that somehow their field floated above or under the radar of the hate and anger that white supremacy and patriarchy wrought on our country. It's confounding to me. How, how could anybody think that academic music could somehow not be affected by the structures and institutions of our country. That's just silly. That, that's not academic. It's subscholarly to say to even say so. So we can look at it from a different perspective rather than having what I have called in my writings a white perspective on Black music. We can take our own agency, take ownership of the topics, and present them to the entire country in very much a multicultural, multiracial environment. There may have been more white participants. I'd say maybe 40% to 50% white participants at our conference couldn't make me happier personally, because that's what I, I want. I actually very much want all races. Uh, in other words, I don't want to do what music theory has done, which is segregate the races. I actually want to bring them together in an integrationist fashion, and then talk about African-American musical topics, which are so very important to our country and to our field, um, and, and invite everyone into those conversations. Yeah. I just wanted to add, um, yeah, that question of ownership is really important to us. And that phrasing that Philly mentioned, the foregrounding of Black voices ownership by Black music scholars was really, really critical. And we actually uh, facilitated a, or convened rather, a meeting of Black Music Scholars Online in preparation for the conference in June of 2021, just announced that we're thinking about doing this and to um, ask for volunteers, right, for folks to help us out and join the movement, as it were. And that was a really amazing and special moment, I thought, because so many people who I don't think had been in, in the same even virtual space before together. Um, and I, I'll add that, um, you know, at Oberlin, um, at uh, African Heritage House, there are definitely moments where all Black spaces are created, and the spaces that are only Black. And I do feel that there is value and importance for that. And that's what we created online, just for an hour, for a conversation. But it was a really amazing and special moment. And I really, felt, uh, for me, I, I thought it had so much value. And I hope we can do that again. Other thing I wanted to say is that the way that we just answered that question I thought really well illustrated how the conference worked and why it worked because you asked about how this started and I went to logistics and resources and Phil very beautifully gave the philosophy and values that actually informed what we were doing. And yes, I apologize. I am an administrator. Very boring. I've been for eight years. So, you know, but that was actually how a lot of the planning unfolded, right? I mean, 
Hill was thinking about programming and personalities and the focus and the framing. And I was like, all right, so we're going to get this pot of money over here. We're going to use this room over there. Yeah, but without that, person. you know, without that, Chris, because nothing would have happened. Let's just be honest. So <laughs> philosophy is great. Right. Yeah. Well, both, I mean, but, <laughs> right. I mean, both of those things are necessary, right? To make it really have a substance and value right. and to physically happen. So, but I think that, that is, that is really why a big part of the reason why it worked because we were able to join forces in that particular way. Yes. The dynamic duo, it really, it really works. Um, and I'm so glad that it could come together. And I, you know, I remember getting an invite I believe it was Phil directly that emailed me back in June for that meeting. And I was so geeked. I was like, wait, what is happening? How did he wait? <laughs> it's like, they've heard of me. What's going on? I'm invited to this, this black music research. Okay. Like it was, it was really, really exciting just to be in a room with, with so many people that were doing really interesting, valuable work. So I agree. We should definitely have another meeting like that. Cause I think, um, spaces like that are really are really precious uh and uh continue to connect us and our work you know as a field with within uh, under the umbrella of yeah if i could just follow up on that that meeting too because it's something that's kind of you know uh slipped my mind but yeah that was the first meeting and i think you said you said it was june of 2021 chris um and it was, uh, I think, two Zoom galleries on my screen. It was, and and I personally have never been in a space like that. Now, of course, a virtual space, but with just Black music scholars. And I think in, at that point, it was 100% Black music scholars um, just talking about African American music. It was kind of, it was, it was at once exhilarating, uh, 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 um, well, refreshing, emancipating, and and incredibly, I don't know humbling rewarding i i'm 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 at a loss for words really to see all these uh scholars just talk about black music and to exert this agency that has quite uh actively been denied black people in in any white space uh such as music theory So my next question is about how you anticipated the rest of the field to react to a meeting like this, because as y'all mentioned earlier, that it was a deliberate choice to not have a theorizing African-American music space be within the context of the annual meeting for the Society of Music Theory. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you could speak a bit more about that choice and why you wanted it to be at a separate time a separate space and also how you anticipated the rest of the field reacting you know as far as if you thought there was going to be a lot of support if there was going to be pushback if you were going to be able to count on financial support from different institutions uh you know i my mind immediately goes to the center for black music research and the black music research journal um that unfortunately had its last issue, I think, in 2016 or 2017. And so, you know, there's also that very practical issue of, of funding and of support. Like, it's one thing to have um, the intentions of, of a meeting like this and of sharing these ideas. And it's a very, uh, it's a different thing. Practically, how is that going to play out? So if y'all could speak to your experience with that. So... I personally don't try to think too much about how official music theory is going to react to to my own work because I would probably go crazy if I did, right? Um, I we were very happy and humbled that uh, SMT we uh, I applied for a subvention and we got some money um, 
uh, upwards of almost $1,000, which was very much appreciated. Uh, that was from SMT. Um, but personally, and since I, I was one of the driving forces of this conference, I guess I, uh, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a personal thing, so I'm, I'm hesitant to say it, but, but it's funny, um, and I don't think my dear friend Ed Clorman would mind me saying it, but once some months ago, he said, well, you're kind of a gadfly to music theory <laughs> these days. <laughs> Sorry, Ed, if, but, you know, look, he's my dear friend, so, and I'm just going to go ahead and say, say that he said that, and I think it's just so perfect because I am I am a gadfly a bit to music theory um, and, and I've caused a lot of consternation and in certain quarters, obviously quite a bit of animosity. Um, and I'm called controversial a little bit, but uh, you know, the, the reason I'm controversial is not really so much about what I'm saying. It's, it's about that I'm black in a white space using the word white clearly and that I have tenure and I'm, I'm well, I'm not really that afraid of 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 music theory's white male frame. All of the put all those things together, and there's controversy, right? So I'll take it away from me. I don't want to talk about myself anymore. But when you're asking about how SMT was going to react or official music theory was going to react, there has to be a little bit of that personal story, I think. Um, I, uh, I I I think that right now it, to have a conference called Theorizing African American Music. Um, taking away some of the agency from whiteness within the field of music theory is always a little unnerving to music theory. Uh, we can unearth a lot of inconvenient facts and a lot of uncomfortable truths about what's happened. We can, we can look at some of the grim acts that have happened in music theory. For example, take the issue of popular music studies in music theory, right? Everybody does some, it seems, these days. Uh, I personally don't have a problem with uh, anybody doing pop music studies in music theory. I'm very much a First Amendment kind of person, free speech. If, if, if do it, you know, that's great. Knock yourself out. I do have a problem, however, with pop music studies and music theory if the white male frame of music theory somehow thinks that it is doing something positive for blackness, that it's helping, celebrating, honoring blackness. If it's having a, a panel on Prince, oh, we are doing, doing blackness right. We're helping the issue. We're even engaging in, in anti-racist activities as certain scholars have said, have suggested. I really have to speak out against these mistaken beliefs in the strongest terms possible. If people want to look at black music, fine, but nobody within music white uh, within music theory's white racial frame should think for a second that they're helping, or honoring, or celebrating blackness. No, I say no. If you pull black music into the vortex of music theory's white racial frame, and you start doing linear progressions, PLR transformations, uh, you know, just any of the things you're looking at modulation, your old truck driver modulations, and all these new terminologies we, we come up with, you're not helping blackness, you're just not. <laughs> you're just not helping blackness. Let's just say it very clearly. If anything, you're hurting blackness. So it's not easy to say these things. Obviously, I'm not mentioning names, but there are well over a hundred such names, maybe hundreds, because people do pop music studies. And that's great. I mean, generally speaking, it's really neat that we are looking at popular music. But when you look at the history of popular music in the United States, you are to a very large extent looking at the history of Black American music, which is what we're talking about here, right? Nobody should deny that fact when you think about the impact that African-American musical genres have had on popular music in our country, right? And when you strip the Blackness from the discussion, when you strip the humanity from Blackness, you are in fact doing immeasurable harm. So if the listener wants to think about positive steps, uh, I could offer a couple of ideas. Well, the first is to stop thinking you're helping Blackness or honoring or celebrating Blackness. Just get rid of that language because you're not. That's number one. Number two, uh, think about engaging with BIPOC scholarship uh, and realize that it's probably not going to happen in, in music theory spectrum and music theory online because those have been unavailable to BIPOC scholars uh, because of the anti-BIPOC-ness of our field. 
So you're going to look in other journals. You're going to look in different places for ideas that could easily be called music theory, but we don't call them that because of the racial segregationism of our field. So look for that, engage with that, and then engage with the people behind that scholarship. They are very often BIPOC people themselves. Uh, you could think of Jeff Chang, who wrote Can't Stop, Won't Stop, best uh, ethnography of, of hip hop. That was maybe 10, 15, 15 years ago, probably. Uh, Joe Schloss wrote a great uh, ethnography, Making Beats. Um, Lauren Kajikawa, right? Uh, he's BIPOC. And then all of the African-American scholars, way too numerous to list here, who've worked with these uh, uh, composers with African-American music and sometimes classical music, obviously, um, and engage with those people. And then uh, if I could just add maybe one final point, um, you know, go to a conference that's not music theory, but music. Uh, go to uh, a podcast interview, invite BIPOC, invite Black people back to SMT, you know, form a panel on some on, on Aretha Franklin, because you're working on Aretha Franklin, and say to yourself, I'm, I'm going to be the only white person on this panel come hell or high water, right? And I'm not going to do the panel if there's another white person on it. This is, I don't want to sound anti-white. I think people who know me well know that I'm not. My mother, who was much cooler than my father, by the way, was white. <laughs> so let's start with that. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is when, when we have our panels of five white men, cisgender, probably straight, talking about, I don't know, Prince or Johnny Lee Hooker, it, it, it just doesn't sit well. It, it doesn't. And we need to understand why it doesn't sit well. We, music theorists, and now I'm speaking to the entire field, need to look in that mirror, have hard conversations with ourselves, realize the racial segregationism on which our field is built, realize the white supremacy on which it is built, and realize that we all share, myself included, a responsibility to confront that past, unearth the, the unpleasantness, and then to have those hard conversations. That's what race scholarship is. That's what anti-racism is. And we should not be running from it at all just simply because it's a little uncomfortable. So many people in our country right now are taking these childish views that we can't, that we have to deny the, the, the past. And that just doesn't get us anywhere. I'm hopeful, I'll end here because it's a bit of a silver lining. I'm hopeful that in music, we can actually have those hard conversations because I think there are a lot of good faith people out there of all races uh, within music theory uh, having those conversations. And it's actually been really... Uh, um, it's been really great to see that happen over these last several years. Yeah, if, if I were to say anything about that, I would just add that, um, first of all, I have to give a shout out to Ed Corman. We were stand partners at Aspen back in 2000. So what's up, Ed, if you're listening to this? Um, second, just to add on to what Phil was saying about pop music studies, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a dissertation now about hip hop, and I'm really struck by the divide, uh, the segregation even of, uh, scholarship in terms of what's published in music, music theory spectrum, music theory online. It's focused exclusively almost on musical structures and scholarship such as in the Journal of Hip Hop Studies that focuses on message, social ramifications, spiritual ramifications. Uh, just because the musical analysis often seems to really be divorced from the message and the implications socially of what's actually happening in, in, in hip-hop, it does feel a bit like we have these structures that we can apply, so we're going to apply them to hip-hop and see what happens, but that's not exactly what hip-hop is about, right? So if you separate it out from uh, how the music is actually conveying a certain mood that has social and political implications, you're kind of losing a big part of the whole purpose of that music, right? And I, I think that's a small part of what happens in pop music studies generally. As this series recaps the defining moments of this conference through the lens of organizers and participants, let us take a moment to revisit Phil Ewell's opening remarks. Welcome to Theorizing African American Music. My name is Philip Ewell, co-convener of this conference with Chris Jenkins. It's so great to be here after over a year of planning. 
I have about 12 minutes of prepared remarks in which I will give a bit of background on our conference. But I'll start by saying a huge general thank you to everyone who's made today possible. Folks at Case Western, Cleveland Institute, Oberlin, University of Louisville, Society for Music Theory, and other places. And of course, to our steering program and local arrangement committees, a huge thanks for all the work you did to make this conference possible. I'll let my co-organizer, Chris Jenkins, do specific thank yous in his remarks since, like any good leader, I'm farming out the hard work of acknowledgments to Chris just in case we forget to thank someone. In law, they call this plausible deniability. But I would like to thank Chris here. I met Chris in January 2020 in Manhattan for lunch when he was there on a visit. He had reached out to me after my November 2019 plenary talk at the Society for Music Theory to discuss some of the racialized aspects of academic music, and it was at this time I learned that Chris was getting not only a DMA in viola performance at CIM, but also a PhD in musicology at Case. Oh yeah, and he's also a dean at Oberlin. Quite the Renaissance man. Chris, it's been great putting this project together with you. I always look forward to our Zoom calls, and I couldn't think of a better partner in planning theorizing African-American music. Thank you for all of your hard work and efforts. Like so many good things in the academic study of music over the past few decades, theorizing African-American music began with Susan McClary. Susan had given a virtual lecture at a prominent school of music, and her lecture featured a piece of classical music written by an African-American composer. During the Q&A, Susan noticed how some of the music theorists were eyeing this piece as fodder for analysis. I think I heard a PLR transformation in there, or the essential expositional closure was quite unexpected, or did you hear the prominent melodic descent from scale degree 5 in the coda? Wow! Well, Susan saw this for what it was another attempt to assimilate African-American music to the music theory mainstream, thus legitimizing the music in question so that it could be mined for resources in the future, all under the guise of honoring or celebrating African-American music, when in fact such activities usually do nothing for blackness at all. So what did Susan do? She turned to two trusted African-American sidekicks, me and Chris, Chris as her official advisee at Case Western, and I as her unofficial advisee in life. We three met on Zoom on April 19th, 2021, and the wheels were set in motion for our conference. Though I won't outline the rich history of conferences highlighting African American music here, theorizing African American music is hardly the first such conference. It's paramount to acknowledge all those scholars, African-American and others, who have worked with this music in the past, going back at least to the 19th century and James Monroe Trotter's 1878 book on African-American composers, music, and some highly musical people. African-Americans have been deeply connected to our country's musical landscape. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you all, American musical genres that could reasonably be called black were segregated out of the academic study of music, just like black persons and other non-whites were segregated out of American society, quite legally and constitutionally, I might add, until the Supreme Court ruled that such segregation was unconstitutional in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. On a personal note, I must admit to being something of a newbie to theorizing and analyzing African American music. This is not to say that this music has been distant to me, not at all. I've always loved all forms of African-American music, and in the late 1980s into the 1990s, there was about a five-year period that the only music I listened to, outside of the classical music I was performing on cello or analyzing in class, was jazz. I still have hundreds upon hundreds of jazz albums and CDs from that time, and I saw live jazz then as well, and artists such as Baker, Blakey, Bird, Carter, Davis, Farmer, Fitzgerald, Getz, Gillespie, Hancock, Heath, Henderson, Jamal, Miller, Modern Jazz Quartet, Peterson, Roach, Rollins, and Shorter, among many others. I saw my favorite jazz pianist, McCoy Tyner, many times all across the country, and the greatest regret of my life was passing up the opportunity to see my favorite vocalist of all time, Sarah Vaughn, 
in the late 1980s in San Francisco, before she died in 1990. The only reason I didn't go to that concert was that I had just seen the indie band R.E.M. the weekend before, and I couldn't afford the tickets. In retrospect, I should have jacked a convenience store for the ticket money. And even though I may be a newbie, I must say that the warmth and openness that I've been met with from scholars who know so much more about African-American music than I do has been truly humbling. We should all invite others into our musical conversations with such warmth and openness. So thank you. Though I've always loved African-American music, I had to live a double life as a doctoral student in music theory at Yale University in the 1990s, and I'm certain that this is a double life that resonates deeply with many of you in the room today. Knowing that you could never have presented an academic work on a Black composer you love to the academic music power structures. Knowing that you had to compartmentalize your love of Black music and find a separate love with what was, let's be clear, a white music we were all told was just plain better than the black music we loved. A mythical white music that we were told had nothing to do with race, just greatness and exceptionalism. Theorizing African American Music is a conference dedicated to removing those barriers that were built between different racial musics. Regrettably, over the years, I myself had been a bricklayer in the fortification of those barriers, even if I had laid those bricks unwittingly. Theorizing African American Music is also dedicated to fighting the musical racial segregationism on which our schools of music were founded in the 19th and 20th centuries, and our conference is also dedicated to promoting musical equity and justice in everything that we do. There have been so few visible black music theory professors in the history of academic music in our country. Of course, black music theorists often existed outside of official music academies in our country, and I willingly acknowledge them here. But until recently, one encountered black music theory's professors in the academy quite rarely. I remember the cognitive dissonance I felt the first time I met another black music theorist, Horace Maxell at a theory conference in about 2005. I didn't know whether I should run up to Horace and hug him or run up to Horace and kill him. Fortunately for everyone involved, I chose the former, and Horace and I have been good friends ever since. I visited Horace at the Center for Black Music Research in Chicago when he was still working there in about 2008, And that was when I first came across the rich legacy of scholarship in African-American music and the work of such icons as Eileen Southern and Samuel Floyd. Horace told me of the first African-American PhDs in music theory, Horace Boyer, Calvin Grimes, and Lucius Wyatt in the early 1970s, which is about when the first such degrees were awarded in the U.S. to begin with. I should also cite here my dear colleague, Jewel Thompson, still teaching with me at Hunter College in New York City, who was likely the first African-American woman to receive the Ph.D. in music theory, and whose 1982 Eastman dissertation on Samuel Coleridge Taylor was likely the first music theory dissertation focusing exclusively on a black composer. Theorizing African-American music honors and continues this legacy today. I often say that in order to do true anti-racist work in American music theory, the type of work that our conference highlights, you actually only need two things. You're going to need tenure, and you're going to need a really good high-speed internet connection. Which, by the way, where I live in Brooklyn, is harder to get than tenure. But if you don't have those two things, doing anti-racist work in music and music theory is much harder. Existing power structures can lash out quite aggressively if challenged directly. Believe me, I have a bit of experience in this regard. (laughs) And one must be prepared to defend oneself from what can be quite silly and disingenuous arguments from those power structures. You can do this by doing two things. First, find your allies, real allies, and not those who might throw up a BLM lawn sign now and then, but who actually do not want to see the structures of what we do in academic music change. By the way, I call such faux allies, anos, allies in name only. 
who are actually far greater in number than you might think. Second, once you've found your true allies, build coalitions and demand change. There's safety in number, folks, and I've seen great things happen when allies band together, form coalitions, and demand reasonable changes from existing power structures. A final point here about allyship. If you've read any of my recent writings, you know that I call out whiteness and maleness as structures, which they have historically been in our country. But I really must separate white male persons from those structures. Some of the very best allies I've ever had in my career have been, in fact, white men. And as I've delved deeper and deeper into race scholarship, I've been honored and humbled at the countless white men who have contacted me to have deep discussions about American music's racial past and how we can move forward together in a positive fashion. And on a final personal note, as a mixed-race black guy myself, I can say with certainty that my white Norwegian mother was a far better anti-racist than my black African-American father. And it was, in fact, my white mom who taught me the true meaning of anti-racism long before that word entered my vocabulary. So, in closing, enjoy our conference. Mingle, eat, drink, reconnect with old friends, and make new ones. Thanks again to everyone who made today possible, and thank you all so very much for being here. This conference would not have been possible without the influence of scholars from all walks of life. Susan McClary rejoins Phil, Chris, and Lydia to discuss her perspectives on teaching Black music and her eventual influence on this conference. I got into uh, including Black music in my syllabi in 1986 when I was asked to teach the course on 20th century music for the university at the University of Minnesota. And in fact, I did not know blues, jazz, anything. I had been a, a dutiful classical music person, sticking my fingers in my ears whenever uh, popular music went by. And, you know, keep in mind that I am a creature of the 60s, you know, arguably the great moment. And, and I simply did not pay attention. But when I was asked to teach this, I thought, I can't possibly teach the history of 20th century music without acknowledging that as soon as sound recording happened, the principal musics heard not just in the United States, but around the globe have been black musics, uh, blues, jazz, uh, soul, hip hop. And, um, and so I made sure that half of my syllabus when I got to the 20th century uh, was uh, made up of black artists. And I believe very firmly in that. Uh, there have been times when NASM has threatened to take away the accreditation of the universities I'm at because I'm doing that. Um, but I, I just do not see another way of teaching the music of the 20th century. Music is not what composers continue to do on the concert stage. Music is what people listen to. Uh, it is what affects our lives, our bodies, our sensibilities, everything. And that is Black music in the 20th century. I'd like to underscore uh, just how rare that was in 1986 and how unique Susan is in that respect. I mean, it's a very small number of people, certainly white people who would have thought to do that. Um, in the 80s, uh, we were very much still mired in this notion of a racial hierarchy in the academic study of music in the United States. Nobody should deny that. That's a statement of fact. Um, and to, to somehow suggest that music written, conceived of, and, um, um, and performed by African-Americans could somehow be part of a curriculum 
that also had, I don't know, 20th century, maybe you had John Cage or, 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 or uh, you know, um, classical music uh, traditions in there, or maybe you had, uh, or I don't know, Elvis Presley or other white uh, artists. All, who, all of the above. Yeah, who were, who were, you know, imitating blackness for, for, for the most part. But uh, that type of, uh, I don't know, that type of offering was simply, you know, it, it cut against the racial order of things. And in the 1980s, whereby the, the United States of America as a country had begun to uh, come out of this uh, civil rights era of the 60s, and Susan had just said that she was a, a child of the 60s, and desegregate honestly into the, into the 70s, and we all know that that project is still ongoing. Um, but in, in music, it was very much that everybody was just kind of living under a rock, right? You, you wouldn't dream of putting out uh, Little Richard or Chuck Berry as an artist that could be even mentioned in the same breath as, I don't know, Morton Feldman or somebody else, uh, you know, who was also writing music at the same time. It, 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 just, it, it just would kind of baffle the mind to the uh, to the the forces the people who had power in the 80s in pretty much the entire country so i just want to underscore how incredible that was of course i'm not surprised because it's susan but but still um and the pushback that she must have gotten for 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 doing that yes i i, I was at the same time uh uh bringing feminist theory into musicology but i i i hasten to say that I, uh, I revised my dissertation with respect to race much sooner than I did with respect to gender. Uh, because, uh, I mean, it just seems to me insane not to understand that black music is the soundtrack of the 20th century, period, period, period. Um, and when I did teach courses on uh, music and women, I found that it only became uh, really a natural thing to do when I got to the 20th century. Because you know you could say, okay, there was Hildegard and now three centuries later, here is another woman. You know, it's just so depressing. When you get to the 20th century, it's a piece of cake because you have Ma Rainey, you have Bessie Smith, you have blah, 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 blah. You know, and these are women everyone knows who have influenced everybody's lives, uh, it is very easy to argue for their prominence. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting that although I'm mostly known for uh, feminist theory, uh, it was much more obvious to me that there had to be racial inclusion at, at that time. Um, what brought me to, uh, egging Phil and Chris uh, into putting on this, uh, this path-breaking conference is that I, I was invited by Michigan to come and speak to the music theory faculty. And I was at the time scrambling like everyone was to figure out what to do in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And uh, in part because of my contact with Chris. Chris had already published an extensive annotated bibliography of Black composers. Now, for all that I was trying to be inclusive, most of my uh, Black musicians were, uh, came from uh, jazz and other vernacular musics. And I, I did have William Grant still on my, uh, my syllabus, but I realized that I really had to think about, of course there were black composers. They were not all working within improvised uh, traditions or big bands or what have you. And, um, and so I put Florence Price on my syllabus. And I uh, fell in love with her music, but also realized that I was not sure exactly how I should be speaking about her music in the classroom. I knew that I ought to, and I knew that we were all suddenly confronted with this, uh, a, you know, across the whole discipline. And I was, I, and so my talk was really uh, concerned with how how to grapple theoretically 
with the music of a composer like uh, Florence Price. And, and I realized that this was a huge, huge topic and that I was not really the person to do this. I mean, Ray Linda Brown had paved the way. Uh, there have been many scholars who have been working um, and, and I thought I should not be the person doing this. And, um, and so I immediately contacted Phil and Chris and said, this needs to be done. You guys do this. <laughs> and, and they signed on. Yeah, so thanks for that, Susan. <laughs> so, you know, Susan, you reaching out to Phil and to Chris and asking them to kind of take on all of the questions that you were thinking about. Did you go to them and were you envisioning like, y'all should put on a conference or was it, or was it a general just like, maybe you should begin thinking about these ideas and it could be something that you publish or it could be a textbook or it could be a like or was it the conference format that you were really envisioning or did you just want to like plant the seed and see wherever they took it no i wanted an event um i thought it was very important to have an event that was publicized uh, so that uh this would mark a, a sort of turning point and um I think that when I first contacted you, I said, you guys need to put on a conference. Uh, we were helped by our institutions, uh, CIM, Oberlin, uh, Case, uh, all chipped in. They were all very, very enthusiastic about having uh, this, this occur. Uh, but I thought that the big public splash was very important. Yeah, that's that's my recollection too. And um, uh, you know, it was Susan who who reached out to to me and Chris after her talk at Michigan, and um, you know, said hey, we need to kind of get in front of this, essentially, just this idea of 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 I want to say reintroducing African American music uh, because you know everyone there, there's like things happened in the 20th century, of course they did, but it was almost impossible to conceive of, like I was saying earlier, when, when Susan first thought of this in 1986, right? It was impossible to just like start thinking, I'm just gonna put Margaret Bond's uh, uh, song cycle next to, um, I don't know, maybe it's a class on song cycle and then uh, next to Franz Schubert song cycle. Uh, that again, would completely go against the racial order of the United States of America in the 1980s, sadly it still kind of goes against the racial order today in 2022. Um, but, but yeah, that's, a, it, it's something, it's almost like Susan gave us a mandate. <laughs> I did. And, uh, you know, get and gun to get, your head. <laughs> yeah, right. Basically. Um, and I, you know, I say tongue in cheek, like, thanks Susan, because it was, it, it was a lot of work, but really it's tongue in cheek because it, it turned out to, and it was work. I mean, no question about that, but it was certainly worth it. And I think we can all, because we were all there, um, can you know have a group nod that uh, it, it was a, a really special event, something that will will move forward, and we have ideas for the future. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point uh, in this mini pod series that we're doing here. But yeah, it was um, it, it was great. So we after that uh, three person Zoom, whenever that was, uh, Chris and I started meeting and planning stuff and. Um, we kind of got out ahead of it. And Susan was right when she said, it really can't be me leading the charge on this. Uh, it was something like that, I think you said, Susan. And um, and yeah, I totally get it. So the language we kept coming back to, and it's language I still use today, is foregrounding Black and BIPOC voices uh, in, the, in these discussions, yet at the same time, inviting absolutely everyone into these discussions. That's, that's generally the way I, I approach uh, thinking about this massive body of music, which, as Susan has pointed out, in the 20th century, it's kind of, well, it's American music. It's you know, almost primarily, right? Uh, if, if you actually look at like the music that people listen to, actually, um, yeah, African-American music and musical genres and performers probably would be in the number one spot. Absolutely. I want to mention that several of the people who came to the conference and who gave uh, keynotes and who were involved with large panels were scholars who have been doing this for decades. 
I mean, this is not the first time anybody has had this idea. And unfortunately, uh, we have to keep doing it over and over and over again. You know, you, so, you, you know, you have people who have been trying to light this fire over and over. Uh, this is not starting from square one. We're all building on that extraordinary work that has been done by Black scholars for decades and decades. I, I think I would end this little, this little point that Susan just brought up. I think it was James with a quote from James Baldwin. I'll paraphrase it here, but he said something like, ours is a history that must be retold over and over and over again. Uh, the point being that it's a history that people try to erase it, people successfully erase it, and then it gets told again, and then it gets told again. And it will keep being told um, that story of uh, African-American music and musical genres, you know, long after we're all gone. Um, and hopefully at some point we can just, you know, put, put all types of music side by side and not think about, uh, you know, systems of power and, and, um, and, and think about, you know, hierarchies and, and actually believe that, that a certain kind of music is somehow better than another kind of music simply because uh, a certain type of people produced it, which is, of course, complete nonsense. At least it's complete nonsense to uh, a humanist and an, and an anti-racist. And also, you know, I really appreciate to Susan's point about the insistence that this needs to be like a public gathering and a public reckoning you know i think when i think of black communities so much of it centers on and hinges on community and gatherings and right there's so much so much power in actually physically being present which obviously was made very difficult by the pandemic um and so i think that aspect of it actually being in person us getting together and listen to music together have these conversations together was really powerful i wanted to, to underscore some of what lydia was saying about community and uh, how this conference felt in our foregrounding, as it were, of Black voices and lending ownership to uh, Black ownership over this kind of conference. I, I think that when you do that in an academic conference, it's going to feel a little different because the, the tenor of the, of the culture is just going to be different, right? Because uh, it actually means something different to have African-American ownership over some kind of cultural product like this. And as Lydia mentioned, community is so important in a, in a way that's just so very different, so distinct from a lot of the hierarchical thinking that goes on in academia. And that's partly what makes it so quote unquote white, that it's so deeply hierarchical and structured and uh, disempowering in that way. So, you know, that's one reason that we hope to continue these kind of events and a type of value that we really are invested and expanding upon and reflecting upon and continuing as we hold more of these events in the future. I guess I would just finish by saying thanks to Susan for kicking <laughs> us in the butt and making us do this and having the foresight to just kind of say, you know, reaching out to a couple of people you thought could do it and having the entrusting us uh, to do it and, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, giving us this impetus because it really did turn out to be something very special, something that we will repeat. Um, you know, we'll talk about future stuff at some point, but you know, we, we're thinking of things. Although we're taking a break, we're not doing it this very next summer. Right? <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'd like to thank everyone at SMT Pod and our friends and colleagues, Susan McClary, Teresa Reed, who did the peer review for today's episode, and my colleague at Hunter College, Jeff Burleson, who played the beginning bumper music, which was an excerpt from Undine Smith-Moore's Before I'd Be a Slave. Join us for the next few episodes of this theorizing African-American music pod series at SMT Pod, where we will feature excerpts from the concert of our first night. And also I have an interview with the keynote speaker for the second night, Dwight Andrews. And also with, I have an interview with some participants. And finally, we'll uh, end with um, some thoughts of, of the final keynote panel. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. Visit our website at smt-pod.org for supplemental materials related to this episode 
and to learn how to submit an episode proposal. Join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at SMT underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zheng Chen Lu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening.